It's been my blessing and privilege to step before Castleberry Church to preach the good news about Jesus for 30 years. It was 30 years ago today that I preached words by which you will be saved. My first sermon as the local preacher at Castleberry Church. I was 35 years old. Susan and I had been married 14 years. And my children were four, two, and eight months old. Today I'm before this church at 65, married for 44 years, and with children, all of whom are with us today, who are 34, 32, and 30. Years have passed and many things have changed, but one thing has not changed. I still believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God, who lived without sin, died for our sins, and was powerfully raised from the dead, and he's coming again. It's my purpose and intention to preach saving words that will point us to Jesus and will save us now and forever. And for this, I've chosen Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Now, let me give you a little background to this paragraph. Titus had a tough assignment on the island of Crete. Cretans were not warm and friendly folks. A prophet of their own described them as always liars, evil beasts, lazy, lazy gluttons. And Paul agreed with that estimation. In addition, false teachers were at work in Crete, teaching what they ought not to teach, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 11. Paul describes them as detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. So yes, it was a tough assignment for a younger man Paul called my true child in a common faith. Titus was to teach what accords with sound doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1, and to exhort and rebuke with all authority, chapter 2, verse 15. Well, my hearers, that's you, are not at all such a tough crowd. But the motivation to preach and to live for God is the same. It's found at the center of this letter, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. So, let's get the text in front of us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In this paragraph, Paul sets down three things that will, I hope, captivate our minds and hearts today. The first is grace. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared. Now, grace is not something we used to think about as appearing. We know it is God's gift, his favor freely given, but not deserved. But Paul says that grace appeared. The word that he uses is something describes something coming into view, something that was once invisible, but it becomes visible. 
In classical Greek, the word is used of the breaking of day when the sun burst over the horizon. It is the word epiphany. So Paul writes that God's grace and effect shined in the darkness. It burst into view. It seems clear that in this case, the appearance of grace was in the form of a person. Not just any person, however. It was, as Paul describes him in verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or in chapter 3, verse 6, Christ Jesus, our Savior. He came into the world, John says, full of grace and truth. And when he did, he was totally and thoroughly gracious. Here's what Paul says. He gave himself to redeem us from sin and purify us for his own. That's grace. Jesus didn't just give us a little gift. No, he gave us himself to rescue sinners from sin, to redeem us. Some of you will remember my favorite story about redemption. If you haven't heard it, you should. It's from Carl Sandburg's book entitled Abraham Lincoln, The Prayer Years and the War Years. The time is October 25th, 1847. The place is Lexington, Kentucky. Lincoln and his family visited his wife's family in Kentucky. He had heard of the auction sale in Lexington of Eliza, a beautiful girl with dark, lustrous eyes and a rich olive complexion. A young Methodist minister, Calvin Fairbank, bid higher and higher against a thick-necked Frenchman from New Orleans. The bids between the men rose. When the bid slowed, the auctioneer would expose Liza to motivate more bidding. He cried, who is going to lose a chance like this? And the Frenchman bid 1465 The minister answered with 1475 the auctioneer asked, who is going to be the winner of this prize? And over the mutter and tumult of the crowd came the Frenchman's slow bid of $1,580. The auctioneer lifted the gavel. He called one, two. Eliza turned a pained and piteous face toward Fairbank, who now bid $1,585. The auctioneer said, I'm going to sell this girl. Are you going to bid? The Frenchman shook his head. The girl collapsed in a faint. The auctioneer said to Fairbank, You got her, sir. Cheap, sir. What are you going to do with her, sir? And Fairbank cried, I will free her. I'm going to free her. That's redemption. Price is paid to buy one out of bondage. Jesus knew our guilt, our sin, our shame. He knew the penalty of sin that we deserved and couldn't pay. He gave himself for us and paid the debt that our sin incurred. And in doing this, he said, free her, free him. I will free you. That's grace. Salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. He brought this for all people. I want to tell you the good news is that whoever you are, whatever you've done, however far from God you've drifted, however black and dark your life has been, 
the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In the person of God's Son, Jesus, he brought it. As we will see, we can access and enjoy the gift in Jesus. So that's the first thing Paul makes Titus aware of in this little paragraph. Now let's think about a second. It's good works. Paul has set on Cretan Christians doing good works. He agreed with one of their own writers that typical Cretans were deceptive, evil, and lazy. So he's especially concerned that Christians be people characterized by good. So he instructed Titus to model good works and to instruct the Cretans to be people of good works. So let's see this in Paul's letter. Chapter 2, verse 7. He writes to Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And as a closing admonition in chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle writes, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What's especially striking, I think, in Paul's letter is the way he connects good works with grace. Grace saves. We've thought about that. It's a common theme in many of Paul's writings. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2 and other places. But Paul adds a dimension in this little letter that we need to be aware of. He says grace not only saves, but it trains us. It teaches us. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 14. So let's see this. Grace trains us to say no, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And grace trains us to say yes, yes, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's possible to see these three terms as referring to our relationships. Self-control has to do with ourselves. Upright has to do with how we treat and deal with other people. And godly refers to our relationship with God. So think about that. Grace trains us in the significant relationships of our lives, with ourselves, with other people, and with God. So Paul not only encourages us to do good, but he explains it in terms of Jesus, who is our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all that's bad and purify for himself people who are zealous of good deeds. That's grace. Jesus gave himself. He didn't have to do that. As a man, think about Gethsemane. He recalled from being separated from God. He said, let this cup pass from me. But as our Savior, he went to the cross. He further prayed, not as I will, but as you will. He went to the cross for sinners to free them from sin slavery and to give them a new owner Paul says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's who Christians are. We are Christ's own possession. We belong to him. We are his and he is ours. Not because of works that we do in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Paul writes in chapter 3, By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. That's grace. 
And as we, as we reflect on it and appreciate all he did for us, undeserved, unmerited, amazing, wonderful, we can't just be the people we always were. We understand grace. We can't just remain the same. We're pur- purified people who belong to Jesus. And as a result of that, we're zealous for good works. Why should we love the unlovable? Why should we sacrifice and serve? Why do good when most people aren't interested in it? Why not live on our own terms and do our own thing? Here's why. Because grace trains and teaches us. We love because we are loved. We serve because we have been served by Jesus. We're zealous for good deeds because we have been redeemed from bad ones. So you reflect on grace, understand grace, appreciate grace, and good will inevitably and abundantly follow. So there's grace, there's good works. But Paul's not through, and I'm not either. There's more. There's glory. Grace saves and grace trains. It trains us in at least two ways. It trains us how to live, and it trains us what to look for and what to wait for. Grace takes us the whole way from salvation to glorification. You'll notice in this little paragraph that Paul has another appearing. The grace of God appeared. That brought salvation for all people. But then he says, second, there's appearing of glory. Glory that's real and possible because Jesus, whom Paul describes as our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, what did he do? Chapter 2, verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem and to purify. So the appearing of grace leads on to the appearing of glory. Now notice how Paul puts all this together in chapter 3. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Paul says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, if you will, let's take this apart just a minute to understand it. Then we'll put it back together to live it. So, Paul talks about our Savior. In verse 4, God is our Savior. In verse 6, Jesus Christ is our Savior. Then he mentions appearing again a third time in this context. The grace of God appeared. The glory appeared But in chapter 3, verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Then grace is given center stage. He talks about grace in verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God. His own mercy in verse 5 and his grace in verse 7. He talks about what God did by grace. He saved us, verse 5, and he justified us in verse 7, being justified by his grace. And then he includes our part in these words. Watch them, verses 5 and 6. 
we're saved not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I think this must be Paul's version of Peter's Pentecost answer. You remember in Pentecost, people said, what shall we do? Peter had described Jesus as Lord in Christ. People said, what shall we do? And his answer was, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul's version of that is that we're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's not our earning salvation, but accessing God's gift. It's a gracious gift. It's not our earning, but our accessing. God extends the gift in Jesus, and we receive the gift in Jesus as we choose to follow him, be joined with him, and stay with him all the way. Paul says we're heirs. We have the hope of eternal life. That's glory. So there's grace, there's good works, there's glory. Paul sets down in this letter about leadership and service, the remarkable grace of God. I want us to see that he talks about that in the past, present, and future. Notice this. The grace of God has appeared. That's the past. Grace trains us how to live. That's the present. Grace leads on to the blessed hope, the appearing of glory. That's future. Past, present, and future. I want to ask this morning, who will pass up a gift like that? We need to take hold of it by faith in Jesus, joining with him by being baptized. We need to live it by loving and serving for Jesus' sake and in his name. We need to wait for it expectantly and faithfully, the hope of eternal life. What a gift. But do you know what people do all the time? They pass it up for junk, for junk that's in the world. Don't do that. Take it, live it, wait for it, all the way to the end. Because grace issues in good works and finally in glory. All this reminds me of a little story that I've shared a few times through the years that I want to close with today. There was an old man and his son who were avid and expert art collectors. They went around the world adding paintings and masterpieces to their collection. And their collection was impressive. But war broke out. And the son volunteered. He was a capable soldier. But he was killed in the line of duty one day as he was taking another soldier to a medic. Word came to the father that the son was dead. And he grieved the loss of his son. The, world, the war finally ended and time passed. One day the soldier who the son had been taking to the medic came to visit the father. He wanted to appreciate what his son had done. 
He knew the father liked paintings, so he had painted a portrait of the son, the man who had saved him. It was not a masterpiece, but the old man appreciated it. And he made a special place for it among his masterpieces. Time passed, and the old man died. Ah, the art world had been waiting for this. Collectors wanted those masterpieces and paintings. So they came from all over. They gathered for an auction. So the auctioneer gets up. And first he holds up the portrait of the man's son. There's jeering in the crowd. There's grumbling. This is not the painting people came for. But the auctioneer explained that this was the man's wish. So he opened the bidding for the portrait of the man's son. Nobody bid. Finally, a family friend who had come just out of curiosity and respect bid $10 for the portrait of the son. Going once, going twice, sold. The auctioneer then explained that the auction was over. There was really grumbling in the room and jeering in the crowd. This, they demanded an explanation. They'd come for those masterpieces. The auctioneer said it is easy to explain. Was the old man's will and wish that whoever takes the son gets it all. That's the gospel story. Jesus came into our world and died on the battlefield for the sins of others. And the gospel is the portrait of his son. And it is God's will and wish that whoever takes the son gets it all. We take the Son by being joined with Him in baptism. We take the Son by remaining faithful to Him. We take the Son by walking with Him and talking with Him, coming back to Him if necessary, staying with Him all the way to the end. I wonder this morning if there are people who need to take the Son so you can have it all. Our great God is a God of grace, for the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God expressed his grace in Jesus, and we can have him and have what his grace makes possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation, and you have the opportunity and our encouragement to come and take Jesus and have it all. Let's stand and sing together.